sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Our guest today comes to us from near the Continental Divide in Western Colorado. Greg Hamilton is president of the Hamilton Library and Constitution Center. And our topic is a provocative one and a topic that um, I dare say will take many Americans by surprise. We're calling it the third American Revolution. Greg, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Hey, thanks, Alan. So the first American Revolution, I think everybody knows about Paul Revere and George Washington and, and all of that. But what is it that we're calling the second American Revolution? Well, the second American Revolution would be the Civil War Amendments, and specifically the 15th Amendments, the 14th Amendment giving us due process, uh, privileges and immunities clauses, the Equal Protection Clause, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then the 15th Amendment, the uh, basically giving African Americans and all people citizenship rights. And then later, that would extend uh, a few years later to basically the Voting Rights Act, the first Voting Rights Act of, I believe, 1877. So why are the Civil War amendments considered a revolution, a second revolution? Well, because it, for the first time, and, and you could read this in the original speeches of the 68th Congress, um, which was the radical Republican right Congress, the winners, so to speak, of the Civil War, it was the aftermath of the Civil War in 1866, where each speaker got up, even John Blaine and uh, several other senators and representatives got up and basically said the first eight amendments of the Constitution should be applied at the state level. That is, the states can no longer suppress or oppress or t deny basic human rights and civil rights to its people, and especially women and African-Americans. And so that was basically intent. I even wrote a paper at the University of Nevada, Reno, on this point, on the anti-slavery amendments and the intention of those amendments, especially the 14th Amendment. And so, so the revolution, it really shifted the balance of power between the power of the states or states' rights and the power of the federal government now to protect the rights of citizens of all people as against incursion by state governments. Well, yes. And if you look at the Constitution of the Confederacy of the South under um, Jefferson Davis, it was the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions of Thomas Jefferson that he had wrote along with Madison. And it was word for word, the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions. And what that was was essentially giving states right to nullify any federal law that came forward. In other words, they said, hey, if we don't like a federal law, we can just bat it away and, and overwrite it anytime we want. When it totally defies Article 6, Sections 1 and 2 of the Constitution, which says that states have to comply with federal law. Yes, we can collaborate. Yes, we can discuss this. But uh, state law that ran afoul of federal law had to comply with federal law if there was a dispute. And that was very clear in Article 6, that Jefferson and Madison said, this is problematic in the Constitution. We've got to reverse all this. And so states' rights and slavery combined, and you can't separate the two issues, really became the impetus for the American Civil War. And so both slavery and states' rights were ultimately 
conquered, if you will, by the Civil War and the legal changes that came in at that time. That's correct. So that leads us now to talking about the third revolution, the third American revolution. Uh, well, how do you see that? I'd like us not to jump there just quite yet. I want to still deal with the second one, because to really understand that third one that we're going to discuss, we have to understand the second one more fully. There's a book by Laura Edwards called The Legal History of the Civil War and Reconstruction, A Nation of Rights. And in that book, she talks about how women and minorities, ethnic minorities and African-Americans, so much wanted the same protections at the state level that the federal constitution allowed for. And they they were the ones really driving the movement for this reform of the constitution. And she also talks about why the South lost the Civil War. She argues that the reason why states' rights run amok or the whole doctrine of nullification was so bad is it basically set up a mindset in the South that caused them to lose the Civil War. In other words, take a township. They could say to the city government that oversaw them or, you know, was above them, they'd say, who are you? You know, we don't have to abide by what you tell us to do. We're, we're autonomous. And it really started back with Jefferson's ideal of an agrarian economy. That is, one can have their own farm and be king of their own farm and be self-supporting, that they didn't have to answer to anybody. And it really goes back to the old romantic Roman Republican notion that basically you were your own fiefdom, you were your own king of your own property, and nobody could interfere with that. So it led to the township saying to the city, who are you? The city saying to the county, who are you? We don't have to abide by your laws or what you tell us to do. The county said to the state, who are you? The state said to the Confederate Congress and to Jefferson Davis, who are you? So it created constant uh, chaos and confusion in terms of the management, not only the Civil War, but of civic life altogether. And it also allowed basically plantation owners to beat the heck out of, forgive the language, out of the slaves and women and whoever they wanted to, whoever they disagreed with. They could oppress anybody, anybody's religious beliefs they didn't agree with, et cetera, et cetera. And so this was basically the seeds of their own destruction. I see why you wanted to tie this in before we get to the third revolution, because the third is really a return to undoing the second, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's it's basically taking rights that are gained, whether you agree with those rights or not. And I'm talking about same sex marriage, abortion, uh, voting rights, whatever. That's not the point. I'm dealing with a greater issue, a political science issue is what we're dealing with. If you understand political science and you understand that this movement, this third American revolution of states' rights run amok, is basically going down the same road. And states right now are trying to take away abortion rights, voting rights, same-sex marriage rights. And more and more, the Supreme Court with the conservative Supreme Court wants to basically align themselves with that movement. This move back to states' rights over federal law. Yeah. There's another element here. So... I get that the opposition to gay rights, gay marriage, abortion, these are rooted in traditional Christian concepts of morality. Yes. But added to this is not simply taking away these rights, but then also a complete transformation of the religion clauses of the First Amendment to favor Christianity and the view that America is a Christian nation, and to remove the impediments that the Constitution built in 
to protect religious freedom, to protect the neutrality of the government in matters of religion. Well, yes. And if you look at the Senate confirmation hearings of Judge Robert Bork, one of the things that derailed his nomination by Ronald Reagan at that committee was the fact that he believed, and he wrote it in two of his books called uh, Slouching Toward Gomorrah and the other one called Tempting of America. He believed that states had a right to raise taxes for their own favorite state churches. In other words, make them state churches. And later, Clarence Thomas and Justice Scalia specifically reiterated that claim that states have a right to basically favor some religions over others. And so the natural result of states' rights run amok is exactly this. It creates the potential for religious persecution of religions that the majority religions don't agree with and are backed up by the state. So let me unpack this, Greg, for our listeners, because it is the Establishment Clause that says, no, government doesn't favor religion generally or any religion in particular. So if you take Clarence Thomas and Robert Bork's view that the First Amendment should return to its pre-Civil War status as having no bearing on what states can do, then states are free to establish religion, to establish whether it's a Sunday version of Christianity or if they want to establish Islam or Buddhism or, you know, something else, that they're perfectly free to establish religion, to prefer religion, and by the same token, to discriminate and persecute religious minorities, because that was perfectly legal before we had the religious freedom protections in the Constitution. That's correct. And it leads to a scenario whereby basically religious dissenters, political dissenters, ethnic minorities, same-sex people, secularists, uh, secular humanists, that is, seem to be found in the same category. It kind of reminds me of Jesus mingling with the sinners, the outcasts of society. And that's who basically the religious and political establishment um, constantly shunned or oppressed. And, and, I, and Jesus identified with these people. I find that very interesting because I feel that if you're on the right side of truth, on prophetic truth, you're not going to find yourself on the winning side, which you and I have discussed before on the previous program. But I think that's important because, um, and back to the states' rights thing, if you have a groundswell of states who have gone a certain direction, then they can say, hey, we have a consensus. Therefore, now it's appropriate for the federal government to mirror what we're doing. And so, therefore, you can see how you can end up with federal laws, not just state laws, federal laws that favor certain religions or a religion over others and certain values over others. And so to me, this groundswell leads to a real problematic situation in this country. In fact, to be honest with you, it leads back to Puritanism. It basically takes our constitutional founding back to the Puritan founding. I would say, I would argue that's really the first American founding before the constitutional founding. It was this romantic notion that we fled persecution from England and France and Germany and all parts of Europe, and we came here to establish religious freedom. But what did they do? What did the Puritans do? They established religious freedom only for themselves. And that was problematic. And it's just basically, that's what the Christian right attempts to do. They try to blur the two foundings as if they're one and the same. I mean, David Barton and others, they come along and they say, hey, no, you know, our founders intended to have a Christian nation by law. 
And I ask, wait a minute, aren't you talking about the Puritan founding <laughs> and, and not the constitutional revolutionary founding in which they founded a secular government? You know, they take it another step, Greg, because they say that we are renewing America's covenant with God. And they cite the Puritans, you know, in the Mayflower Compact as though, you know, God responds to our promises. You know, the covenants in the Bible are promises that God made, not promises that people made, right? But they go even further than that. They, they try to co-opt the founding fathers, constitutional founders, to say that that's what they intended. Of course. And, and they did not. They didn't do it not anywhere close. But, you know, I have to ask, so, you know, who are part of this so-called covenant with God? They certainly don't include Mexican immigrants or Japanese immigrants that were incarcerated during World War II or the Chinese laborers who built the railroads, you know, and certainly not the Catholics or the Jews, for that matter, who were persecuted and excluded for so long when they first began to, to immigrate here. So it's very much a white, racist conception of who is a real America and what Christian America is, it's white and it's, you know, European and it's Protestant. Well, that's where this manifesto of states' rights leads us. It's basically originates from a Southern Confederate base and it's emerged through the Tea Party, so-called, and it is now a movement called, and forgive me for saying this, Trumpism, and I, that may be overtly political here, but even the Republican Party, I mean, I was reading Business Insider this morning, the Republican Party has now shifted to 52% basically opposing Trump's claims that the election was fraudulent and 48% favoring it. But there's been a sea chain, a shift, a change within the Republican Party that I think is very positive. And I think people are starting to wake up. And so I think that's a good thing. But at the same I've got to cut you off because we've got to go. But I'm reminded that you are, in fact, a Republican. So <laughs> I, I think we can take your comments as not being unduly partisan. Yeah. But our topic today, the third American Revolution, a critically important one. Our guest, Greg Hamilton, president of the Hamilton Library and Constitution Center. As always, a pleasure to have you on Freedom's Ring, my friend. Thank you. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.